Uh, if you have not been with us in the past couple of weeks, uh, we've actually spent three weeks already, I believe it is, uh, in the Pentecost story in Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to spend one more week there this week, uh, although honestly it's, it is purely a jumping off point tonight. In fact, this is not really going to be a normal sermon. Um, this is as much, uh, I don't know, confessional or something as it is anything. Um, but if you have not been here in this series, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast, or watch the videos uh, online. We, we talked about a few different things. We talked first week about the um, focus and direction of the church, a church that is kind of driven out into the world to speak love to those in a language that they can hear it. We talked uh, the next week about the struggle that we as a church tend to have with that idea that uh, God is here for all, for everybody. We, we tend to uh, make an us and them in this world, and that is not what God has in mind. So we talked about that uh, two weeks ago. Last week, um, we talked about what I think is honestly uh, kind of at the core of all Christian ethics and morality, which is the idea of um, which lines we get in the front of and which lines we get in the back of. Uh, where do we say me first and where do we say you first, right? And that if you kind of boil it down in that way, uh, you can understand the, uh, a lot of uh, how we're supposed to live in this world. And particularly last week, we talked about how this whole Pentecost scene is a scene that leads towards repentance, towards people willing to be open to change, willing to turn from one thing to another, and how it starts here. It starts with a small group of people before it goes out into the world. So when there's repentance, when there's I'm sorry, when there's um, I need to do better or I want to do better, we are the first in that line. Well, typically we want to say you first when it comes to that kind of thing. If there's problems in the world, it's probably your fault, not mine. You go first. We say me first when it comes to uh, the idea of repentance, which I know, again, is one of those $20 theological words that we're, uh, some of you have been abused with over the years in church, and so we shy away from, but it's not a bad thing. So we talked about those things, and tonight I wanna, I'm going to key in on, on one verse, uh, and, and, which is verse 23 uh, out of the first part of, of Peter's uh, sermon here. And um, this is not a typical sermon. In fact, I, I'm really kind of doing what you're not supposed to do with sermons. Uh, which is what you're supposed to do with sermons is like, here's the text, and this is, this is the point of the, the whole text is moving toward this. Let me try and unpack the meaning of this thing. And what I'm doing is honestly taking one line because it provokes a thought and a certain kind of theological um, idea. And I really, it's that idea I want to talk about. So uh, my, my preaching professor probably wouldn't be real happy with me. But even more so than that, um, honestly, what I'm going to talk about tonight would get me just flat kicked out of my church growing up. So this, this is a dangerous thing, what we're doing tonight. It is, it is uh, cutting edge. Um, but we had a certain way of talking about God, a certain way of talking about God's will, about our own will, free will, not free will, how all those things work together. Um, growing up, um, that was honestly very difficult for me to ever um, get on board with or understand. And so I want to try and give you tonight, um, mostly I'm going to give you an analogy. I'm going to give you an analogy that really helped me to get past some things that, uh, quite honestly, if I wouldn't have gotten past it, I probably would not be a part of church anymore. It was the thing uh, that was most difficult for me to figure out uh, if I still wanted to believe in this and move forward with this. And so, um, yeah, so again, maybe I'm just up here for me. If so, I'll try to be done quick enough that you can, you know, go get a good dinner tonight. So uh, Acts 2, uh, verses, I'm going to go ahead and read 14 uh, through 24. 
uh, but we're going to key in on verse 23. It says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. And again, this is his defense for when everyone begins to, comes out of the house and is speaking languages they don't know, and everyone's hearing things in their own language, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and some are amazed, and some, because there's always some of these folks in the crowd, go, ah, they're drunk. And, of course, Peter says, we're not drunk, it's only nine. We don't do that this early. Uh, And then we move on, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. All, all, right? And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And then verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 23 again, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. And this all leads into the repentance that will come at the end of the sermon. Verse 23 has a whole lot packed into a very little verse. Within these verses, I think you can find a snapshot of a theological problem that the church has wrestled with for a long time. God has a deliberate plan. God has foreknowledge. And what we are doing matters, right? You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. What we do matters. What we do is something we're accountable for. And God has a plan. And God has foreknowledge, right? This presents a whole host of questions over which a lot of theological ink has been spilled. I mean volumes. You could fill libraries with what people have talked about and and discussed and argued about in regards to these ideas. Is God in control? If so, what does that mean? What do we mean when we say that? Does God know exactly what is going to happen? Is God making everything happen? Is God in control? What does it mean to say God's in control? Do we have a free will or not? Does what we do matter or not? Big questions, right? And so what I want to do tonight in the next like 10, 15 minutes is just perfectly answer all of them so no one has to ever ask it again. And we can just burn those libraries down. No, of course not. Um, But I do want to give you, again, an analogy that helped click some things into focus for me. It's not perfect. It's an analogy. All analogies fall short. All analogies fall apart if you carry them far enough. But for whatever reason, this made some sense to me. And in a meeting I have each week with some other pastors in town, we meet every Monday, talk about the text we're going to preach on that week and kind of help each other think through it. Uh, This whole topic came up. And when I kind of remembered this, I can't remember if I've ever shared it with you guys, 
we had this great conversation, and someone's like, you, I mean, you guys talk, you talk about that to your church, right? And I said, I don't know that I have. And I said, well, you should, and so I'm taking their advice. So blame them if you don't like the talk. But it's, uh, it's very helpful for me. And again, at best, um, analogies uh, can only point to the thing. They aren't the thing, right? So we understand that it's not going to uh, answer all the questions, but it helps me. Uh, and I think analogy and metaphor, uh, while they are imperfect, are very important. In fact, Jesus uses them constantly, right? How are we supposed to wrap our minds around an infinite God, a God who created the cosmos that's literally still seemingly exploding outwards for all that we can tell? God of all that, how are we supposed to understand and talk about that? Well, the only thing we can do is by analogy or by metaphor or whatever, right? Um, you see it all throughout Jesus' teaching. God is like a loving father who has two sons. The kingdom of heaven is like a widow who, what, 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 being a good neighbor is like a Samaritan who finds someone on the side of the road. It's always analogy, right? It doesn't tell the full story, but it points us towards something that we can hold on to. In fact, I'd be uh, wary of anyone that paints a portrait of God that is beyond analogy. Uh, in fact, the way some people talk about God, you could, you know, if you talked about a person like that, you would say that person is evil and terrible and horrible. And they say, yeah, well, God's like mysterious. Well, if I can't even understand God by analogy of what goodness and love uh, is in the world that I know, then what are we talking about at all, right? It's important. Not perfect, but it's important. We can't know everything about God through these analogies, but we can know much that is very important. And in answer to these questions of how does God's plan work, how does God's will work, how does, uh, you know, who's in charge and what is God doing and what can I do, in answer to this, much of theology in the past few hundred years since the Reformation have answered these questions with uh, generally the idea that, and you've probably heard this term before, God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. Uh, by which what is often meant by that I will uh, present a, maybe a different way of thinking about it tonight. What is meant by God is sovereign is that nothing happens outside of God's will or God's control, right? God is in control. Everything happens because God wants it to happen, right? Even if it appears to be a bad thing, it's part of what God wants to have happen. We are more actors than we are writers in the narrative. Though we are still guilty and we are still accountable by our very nature, uh, it varies in degrees, but there's different ways of talking about it, but it's kind of deterministic in nature, right? God is doing this thing, and we are kind of along for the ride. This is how I grew up. I grew up in a church where um, there was no other way of talking about it <laughs> and being okay. Uh, in fact, my, my mother one time got in a fight with a pastor over it, a verbal fight, not like a fight. Uh, but, but that's the fact that my mom got in an argument with anybody is amazing. Because I've never, I never saw my mom raise her voice. Uh, I never heard her cuss. And she had said half a cuss word one time and felt guilty about it. Uh, that's just who she was. Um, but this was a thing that you, you could not bend on these ideas when I grew up. Um, I no longer belong to this way of thinking about things. But let me say right now, I know tons of amazing, faithful, beautiful people that still talk about God in this way, still understand God in this way. So I'm going to present to you what helps save my faith uh, in, in this regard, but hear me when I say that if you don't agree with me, if this way I just talked about God fits and works for you and it's your conviction and it's your heart, I'm fine with that. Uh, and that's one of the things about this church. We're not going to tell you exactly how to think about these things. Uh, but for me, I could never 
quite get it to fit. I can never quite reconcile it with how Scripture read to me with the experiences I had in my life. And when you started running into some things that happened, I had a hard time making sense of what was going on, right? Someone gets a horrible diagnosis and it takes their lives too soon. And God did that for our good, right? There's a new virus when I was growing up in the 80s killing people in awful ways. And we said, well, God's doing it. Probably judgment for the evil things they're doing, right? That's how we talked about things. Earthquakes or hurricanes or a bridge collapse. Don't question God's will. God is doing this for a reason that you just can't understand. It may look terrible. It may look evil, but it's actually good. Just trust that it's good, right? All because it's God's will, all because God is sovereign. It all comes from God. And I could just never make that work. Again, I'm okay if you can. I couldn't. Uh, I'd studied it. I learned it. And in fact, I was trained to try and convince other people of it. Um, so I understand where it comes from. I know the framework. I know how you read, especially Paul's letters, in a certain light to get to there. Um, it just never was able to be reconciled with me. And at one point, it was the thing that was making me want to walk away from faith altogether. Now, I have zero desire to try and talk you out of that, again, if you genuinely believe that. Um, but I ultimately, I think that scriptures, like the, even that one verse we talk about today, can complicate that way of thinking about it. Can God have a plan and foreknowledge and our actions matter? How can God have a plan and foreknowledge and we kill Jesus? How do all those things happen together? So, I can never make sense of it. But today, again, I want to give you an analogy that helped me, uh, gave me a new lens. I liked it a lot. It made some sense to me. Um, you may not, but again, I'll be quick. So I, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the game of chess. Now, I would love to be smart enough uh, to tell you honestly about a story of when I first fell in love with the game of chess. Uh, when I sat down at the board and suddenly a new world opened up to me. I fell in love with the game and how after years of playing in the park on that clock with the people who were really good at it and being mentored by masters of the game, uh, I began to understand the complexity and the layers of this magical game that has been around for so long. I've grown as a player and a thinker through all these years of honing my skills of such a difficult game. Uh, but that's not me. I'm not even good at checkers. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm bad at Jenga, and that takes no mental capacity whatsoever, right? Chess is next level for me. Chess is a complete and total mystery. Uh, if I'm honest with you, I'm not up for the task. And some of you may play a lot, and you may say, no, Mike, you just haven't put the time in. Nope, it's not for me. I know it's not for me. It's okay. We can all know our limitations. That's mine. I'm not a chess player. I never will be a chess player. This week, I decided to look up some statistics on chess, and if I didn't think so before, I now know that I am not intended to be a chess player. I'm going to throw this out to you. I'm going to let actually uh, some of you make a guess. Okay, in a game of chess, after each player has taken one move in a game of chess, after each player has taken one move in a game of chess, how many possible positions are there on a chessboard after just one move each? Anyone have a guess they want to venture out there? Just say something. That's all right. I was way wrong, so it's okay if you're wrong. After one move, 400 possibilities. But, but, but get ready, you're on the right track here. So after one move, there's 400 possible positions on the board. After one move. After two moves, 72,084 possible positions. After two moves from each player. 
I can't even make sense of that math, let alone the actual game that it's attached to. After three moves, this feels like a, none of this can be real, but I, I really did verify it, I mean, on the internet, but from seemingly reliable spaces on the internet, unless they're all just coding each other, after three moves, there are nine million variations on a chessboard, after three moves each. After four moves each, 288 billion possible formations, right? One mathematician that gets quoted for all these numbers who came up with the formula for it believed at the time that there are more possible iterations in a game of chess than atoms in the observable universe. That doesn't seem like it can possibly be true. But then again, I don't understand atoms, so maybe it is. Uh, I'm too, too dumb to understand any of this. Seems remarkably hard to prove. I mean, how do you account for that? But you get the point. Immensely complex. One move in, all the possibilities start exploding outwards, right, of what could happen. Every different variation of things. Much of what a player is learning as they're trying to improve in the game of chess is how to hold as many of those possibilities in their mind at once, right? So you can maybe begin to determine, not solely, but in part, you can begin to determine a good player based on how many moves ahead of time they can kind of see happening on the board, right? Maybe you can see one move ahead. You know that if this is this, and then these things are possible, and then you can see kind of one cycle ahead. Maybe two, maybe even four. I heard one person say, and I couldn't find anything that verified this, that a master chess player can see 30 moves ahead of time. Now, based on the statistics I just read to you, that doesn't seem possible to me, but you get the, the general point, right? Regardless, if I sat down at a chessboard across from a chess master, across from the computer, that they still haven't gotten even the supercomputer to hold all these possibilities at once, right? If I sat across from a chess master, me as a newbie, who probably doesn't even know all the single moves available to me on the first move, because the, the, the horse always confuses me a little bit. It's called a horse, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know it's a knight. <laughs> I'm not that dumb. Okay. <laughs> you know, the horsey thing. But uh, a newbie like me who may not even really know the single move that's available to me, let alone all the possibilities it opens, especially after someone responds to it, a chess master would know all of my moves, all of her possible moves, and all of the moves those combinations would open up. They would hold all of that at once. All those possibilities, they would hold at one time. And for that reason, uh, not only that reason, but for at least that reason, that means I could play a chess master 100,000 times in a row and never win. I'm not going to get lucky and throw that one sky hook that makes it over Michael Jordan's head. I'm not going to happen to kick a ball that, you know, bounces off this thing and goes into the goal against the world's greatest goalkeeper. There's really no scenario in which I accidentally win a game of chess against a chess master. They know too much, right? They know all, they hold all the possibilities at once. I will never beat them. I'm just not capable, barring them dropping dead or me getting a brain transplant partway through. So let's hold that analogy for a moment. And this is, what, this is what someone put before me was a guy named Greg Boyd in, in, in a book that I read and that I heard him speak about as well. If you take this analogy and you stretch it out in regards to the very topic we've been talking about theologically, in regards to God's will, free will, God's sovereignty, all those things, 
I think it can begin to make sense of some of these seemingly competing realities, right? In this analogy, God is the ultimate chess master. Not just a player who can think three or four moves ahead of time and three or four sets of iterations ahead of time, but God being God, the creator of all things, is the ultimate chess master. A player who can hold every possibility, more than there are atoms in the known universe possibly, holds every possibility at once. There is no thing that could happen that would surprise God, right? Because God holds all these possibilities within God's self and understands all these possibilities at once. And in in this kind of analogy, in this way of thinking, this is what we call sovereignty. Not that God is making everything happen, but all the possibilities exist for God at once. There is no surprising God. There is no outsmarting God. There is no outplaying God. So God is the ultimate chess master, holding all possibilities at once. It isn't that the game has already been played, and we just haven't seen it or experienced it yet. We haven't watched the movie, so to speak. It's not that the script has, necess- has been written. It is that there is no possible thing that could happen, no choice or choices made that can catch God by surprise or catch God unprepared. God holds all the possibilities at once. If I am playing on the same board as that chess master, the ultimate chess master, then two things are happening at the same time. First, I'm still making choices. The chess master's not reaching over the board and moving my pieces for me. I'm still moving my pieces, right? I'm making choices, and those choices have consequences. They affect the game. They have consequences for myself. They have consequences for Every, the pieces in the game for the horses and everything else, they have consequences, right? I am making choices. They have consequences. They're meaningful consequences. But I can't surprise the chess master. And so the chess master will always achieve the chess master's ends. No surprising, no outplaying. Now, I, oh, oh, I can play against those ends. Or I can do something that you wouldn't do in chess, obviously, which is try and play into the master's hands so the master's will gets accomplished sooner. But the chess master cannot lose. Ultimately, the master's will is done. Right? Again, the chess master's not playing both sides of the board, which when I grew up, that's what we meant by sovereignty. Nothing was happening that wasn't happening because the master was doing it. Again, in this image, the chess master is not playing both sides of the board. We are still participants. We have choices with real consequences for ourselves and for each other. But the game is not over. God's plan is not thwarted. Redemption will eventually win. To use the language of Acts, God has a deliberate plan. God has foreknowledge because all the possibilities are held at once, right? But we still are making moves. In this case, not so good moves. We, with the help of evil men, put Christ to death. We are responsible for those choices. Ultimately, later on the sermon, we can repent and heal what we have broken with God's help. God as the chess master. Again, obviously, this uh, analogy has some limitations. Can't stretch it too far. Why are multiple people playing on the same board, or do we all have different boards, or are we the pieces, or we, I understand, like, it, it falls apart at some point, but 
I hope this is, are you guys, give me a little nod if this is all kind of, okay, good. I think this can be very helpful in how we consider a good and sovereign God existing at the same time as some pretty terrible things in this world. It's not just a matter of, is God really good? Is God doing all these things? Is God making all this stuff happen? We are free people with free wills who can make choices and make moves in this world, some of which are good and some of which are horrible. Some of which can build towards a positive end, some of which are destructive. But there is no outplaying the master. I think the point is that we can have confidence in God's power and God's goodness at the same time as we can acknowledge our own responsibility the power that we have, and the freedom to help or hurt God's purposes in this world which we have been given. We can own that our actions have real and meaningful consequences while also not bearing the burden of being the master. We can't fix it all. We can't bring it all together. That's not our job. You're not capable. The master is love and grace and hope and all of these things. The master is this thing and the master's, master will win and what we do matters. We should be making every effort to move towards the same ends as God and God's sacrificial love. We should own our lives, own our choices, and trust that God will make up for our shortcomings and God is still going to accomplish what God is seeking to do in this world. There is hope. The story may not be written, but the end is known. Y'all following this? Does that make sense? I know that I personally had very deep struggles with what I was given as a child and the way we thought about God and God's will and God's sovereignty. What do I do with the objectively evil things I saw in the world? I couldn't, I just couldn't sit with the don't worry about it, God's ways are mysterious. God did it for a reason. If the person who was sitting next to me had done something like that, we would call it evil, we'd put him in jail, we'd name it for what it was. I just couldn't make it work. Now, I, don't, I hardly know what the horsey piece is called, so maybe I'm just too dumb to understand good theology, and I understand that. But I couldn't understand why that would happen if God was playing both sides of the board. How could God be good and the moves that God seemed to be making be so objectively wrong. And again, this was the thing that made me want to go, done. Right? Maybe you don't have that struggle. Maybe this is not something you need. And I am good with that. I'm not saying you haven't explored faith or thought about it deeply enough. If you haven't had the same struggles I do, that's not how this works. But I personally found a lot of freedom when I stopped using that lens. And scripture began to make a little more sense to me. Definitely don't understand it all. Definitely still have some questions and some struggles. Pick a week and it'll probably be something different. But I believe the master will win. I believe that God is sovereign enough to take all the possibilities, all of our messy decisions through all of history and still somehow move them all towards a new creation. Do my choices matter? Yes, they matter to me, they matter to my neighbor, they matter to the world, they matter to God. 
but I can't undo what God is doing. I can't outplay God. I can't begin to undo God's redemption in this world. What I can do is begin to move in this world in a way that, that advances his inevitable victory instead of gets in the way. And that's about all I can handle. Well, let's pray.